everybody. It's Tumble Vision, episode 71. I'm your host, Heather Gold. And this week on Tumble Vision, we're going to have wonderful Ethan Zuckerman as our guest. And Ethan, I think we're going to talk a little bit about Google+. Plus. I, I can't avoid it any longer. And what else would you like to talk about tonight? Oh, I think there's lots we can talk about, but we'll probably uh, work in some fan fiction. Uh, maybe we'll talk a little bit about uh, Birds of a Feather flocking together, and I hope we'll talk a little bit about how we might make our social networks more diverse and more global. And Deb Schultz, you're also with us tonight. What else do you want to get into? I hope we talk about how to create more serendipity online. And Kevin Marks. I've been avenged at Google. <laughs> um, as well as Google Plus, I want to talk about how we're all imperfectly multilingual. How concisely done. Great. Join us. Hey everyone, this is Heather Gold, and this is episode 71 of Tumble Vision. I am hosting tonight from Toronto, and also we have with us... Kevin Marks. Kevin, where are you today? I'm in San Francisco in the um, Salesforce One Market building. Lovely. And our special guest tonight is Ethan Zuckerman. Ethan, welcome and thanks for joining us at Tumblevision. Hey, very happy to uh, be with you guys and greetings from a uh, beautiful and slightly dark Williamstown, Massachusetts. Lovely. So, so Temple Vision is a show about where human and tech selves intersect. It's a weekly style salon podcast where we talk about how we're connecting and creating a world that puts people at the center of business, tech, and culture. And we explore different areas of tumbling with some of the most interesting people we can find helping create this more networked world. And what is this word tumbling? Uh, well, it's an old Yiddish word that describes an act or practice. A tumbler was a noisemaker or somebody hired to entertain at a wedding. But the difference between just, you know, purely being watched as an entertaining and tumbling is that tumblers engage everybody else and help get them involved and help them be in the show or dance at the wedding or what have you. So when we're trying to figure out how you actually collaborate in a networked era and how you can run things when command and control hierarchy doesn't work anymore, we think tumbling is really the answer of, of the practice that works. So, uh, Ethan is a perfect, wonderful guest. Deb Schultz will, we hope, find us somewhere. I think she's in Jerusalem, somewhere in Israel, and join us later if you're wondering where she's at. And uh, Ethan, you have been the head of many things. Uh, you are uh, now, is it already started? The Center for Civic Media at MIT or is it about to start? Well, so the, the center is going to reboot, and I think we, we started the rebooting process. We just ran a conference at an MIT uh, a couple of days ago. Um, I actually move into the office and drag all my books and such over there uh, on the 1st of September. So you can think of this as sort of that, that you know, loading the dynamically loaded libraries stage. You know, I'm, I'm trying to get myself installed within the MIT operating system. And so is it, am I right that the Knight Fellowship is what's, or that foundation is funded, the Center for Civic Media? Right. So here, here's the story. Um, about four years ago, uh, three really, really smart people at MIT, uh, Henry Jenkins, who's now over at USC, uh, Chris Csikszentmihalyi, uh, who's moving on to Parsons, and Mitch Resnick, uh, who's still at MIT, founded this center called the Center for Future Civic Media. And um, 
it's basically been focused on this question of how do we create the future of media in this participatory age um, where it's no longer just professionals, but it's really everybody creating media. And it went through the first sort of four years with funding from the Knight Foundation, and they decided to start it again this coming fall, and they needed someone to run it. Uh, because both Chris and Henry had left, uh, and they invited me in. And one of the things that I uh, asked as a requirement was I could never say the Center for Future Civic Media and get the phrase right. Uh, so I asked to drop the future uh, and, and insist that the future is now. That sounds like a good initial act, Ethan, because I would have never remembered the Center for Future Civic. It sounds like something I'm supposed to learn in French class, some kind of tense that I would get wrong. <laughs> Well, the other thing that sort of freaked me out about it is that everyone, no one was able to say the Center for Future Civic Media, and so what everyone called it instead was C4, which to me has this sort of connotation of blowing (laughs) stuff up, um, which which honestly just makes me a little bit nervous. I mean, maybe I'm insufficiently revolutionary in my work, but um, I I, I thought being civic was probably better than being explosive. So uh, now Center for Civic Media, we're going to try it out. The other thing is for any of you who are hockey fans, it means we can wear our CCM gear and uh, be affiliated with the lab and not have to buy special T-shirts. All right. Lots of nerd hockey overlap, I hope. I don't know if you know, Ethan. I'm a serious, I was a serious hockey player, so I appreciate uh, the reference. I, I, I had no idea, but I'm, uh, I'm thrilled to hear. How else is a Jewish-Canadian girl going to end up in the United States if not through playing hockey? Uh, so, <laughs> let's, so let's get into some of what's gone in the last week, and then we'll dig deeper into, into your work, Ethan. But it's been kind of a, kind of a big week, and I'm glad you're, you're back, Kevin, because... Uh, Google Plus has launched, and as uh, I mean, you might not know Ethan, but we've spent a lot of time in this show doing a lot of detailed analysis of all the major social networks, and a lot of time on Google. We've done shows with Yuri Engstrom, who used to be pretty important in Google Social, and um, and other uh, some other folks. And I, Kevin, I have to say, I mea culpa, I stand corrected. I did not think Google would come anywhere close to as good as. Google Plus is at this point. Now that's my feeling about it. What do you think? Um, I'm I'm pleased that they managed to pull this off because there's a bunch of stuff that um, is really hard for them to do, and part of it is understanding social to begin with because they approach it from a very engineering viewpoint. But the other part is tying it together with lots with the lots of different services that they have. And that was something that, you know, when I was there working on, on this stuff, that was one of the big frustration points because it was very clear that we needed a unified profile system, a way to communicate and so on. But um, all the independent units had their own ones, and there was a lot of work to try and draw that together. So this is, this is clearly moving down that direction. The other thing that I'm, I'm impressed with about it is that um, they've clearly learned from the buzz debacle um, and are actually rolling it out gradually, opening up piece by piece and trying to learn from the people who are adopting it. Um, I think they still may run into a um, a, a sort of difference of, of level when it opens up to, to everyone rather than sort of rolling out um, you know, to, a, to hundreds of thousands of people um, because, because it'll, it'll be less self-selecting and, and, it'll, um, and less um, friends of friends. Um, but I think there's... You know what? What they have done this time round, it seems very smart. And and also, I mean, the fluidity of what they've built is is nice. I think the um, they, this is the first thing since maybe LiveJournal where the selective sharing um, is 
built into it from the start. I think that's 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 is significant. I I love that live journal analogy, and um, I, I think live journal is is one of the sort of great underrated and underconsidered social platforms out there, and. Um, it, it's incredibly important in, in a bunch of different communities. It's, it's very, very important in the Russian-speaking world right. uh, where there's a strong sense that you don't necessarily want to share your opinions with everybody. You'd really want to share it with a much more constrained set of people. It's also been really good for uh, other sort of close communities like uh, the fan fiction community, which actually I, I hope we'll talk a little bit about today, uh, where, again, you might want to share with a sort of limited group of people but not with everybody. And so I think building that in from the ground up is just incredibly smart. What I'm finding so fascinating about all of this is um, watching everyone try to figure out how you're supposed to behave in this new space. Um, and, and it's just so interesting to think about. I mean, generally speaking, I don't think we have as rapid adoption of a new tech as we've seen uh, with Google+, where suddenly... Um, you know, within the space of about a week, everybody gets invites and everyone wants to try it out. And it's not quite Facebook and it's not quite Twitter and it's a little bit different. And I find every time I'm sitting down to it, I still have the question of what's the correct way to use this. I don't uh, think there is a correct way. I don't think anybody could answer that. Do you? Well, I think that's, that's you know, part of it is that there is more than one correct way to use it, which, which is a sign that they built something that is truly generative and isn't funneling you into, into one view. And I think that's the, that's the sign of that they've got something right. You know, there's, there's, there's not one correct way to use Twitter. There's lots of ways to use Twitter in, um, in different ways depending on what you're trying to do with it. And that's a, that's a sign that you've built something that is actually malleable by, by the users. Um, and Twitter was very, very good at, at learning that and, and rolling that back in, in the you know, the early stages of the platform, and I think they're trying to learn from that as well. I'm sorry to have interrupted there, Ethan. Go ahead. What, what, what oh, no, I was going to say, I, I, I think maybe what I'm, what I'm actually looking for is I, I'm looking for the right way to me, for me to use it. Gotcha. Um, I, I'm not sure that I've ever actually gotten to the point where I, I use Facebook in a way that I'm happy with. Um, it took me a while to figure out how to use Twitter. Uh, and at this point, I, I'm sort of comfortable with my broadcaster amplifier role uh, within that space. And, and it, it, it works quite, quite well for me. Um, but I, 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 I somehow sort of feel like I shouldn't take that behavior and just sort of lay it on top of Google+, although it's pretty clear that I could do it within it. Uh, and, and so it's funny. I was, I was very excited to sort of peel the wrapping off and get in there. And now what I'm sort of doing is waiting to see what everybody else chooses to do with it because uh, I think it will help me figure out what I want to do with it. You know, I think what you just said is pretty is interesting and worth going into around um, social platforms in general and maybe relative to the idea of, of tumbling, which is what is the right way for you to use it? There's a whole economy around these platforms that's, you know, infamously called the social media douchebags. There are people who sort of teach other people how to use this stuff or, or just really focus on it a lot. And so then what you end up with is as the platforms grow, a kind of um, – you tell me, somebody's got to tell me what to do with it. Uh, when in fact, it, I don't think, I think you probably do need to find, uh, for it to, to be meaningful to, to anyone, uh, you need to find your own way in which it works for you. But I think that being centered on what you need is, and we're getting some noise here, um, is something that's that's not there for a lot of people who are later adopters of these, of these channels. And I think it'll be even less obvious with Google Plus than, um, either Twitter or Facebook, which can 
sort of, you know, you can kind of feel corralled a little bit into a direction. I don't know what you think about that, Ethan, but it just strikes me that that's, that, that very question is something a lot of people don't even think to ask later on or would be afraid to even ask. Well, it's interesting. I, I had not uh, heard the term social media douchebags, although I, I, no? I, I, think I'd, I, I think I'd be more likely to use it in uh, in abbreviation, perhaps, perhaps the SMD, SMD. SMDs. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what I will say is that my general advice uh, to the nonprofit community, which is who I'm generally talking to, uh, is not to go out and hire an SMD, um, but to find someone who's native on a platform. Uh, so, in fact, I was I was talking to someone earlier today with a, a big foundation who was trying to figure out the social media question, and I ended up saying, just send an email to everyone in your company, ask people to send back to you how many Twitter and how many Facebook friends they have, and, you know, pick someone with 500 Twitter followers and, you know, ask that person to do your social media. They probably know the rules of the space, and, and you'll probably do better than hiring a, a, a random SMD. Um, but I, I mean, for me, I think that that's part of it as well. It's sort of figuring out, I, I'm really intrigued at finding people who use a tool like Twitter uh, radically differently than I do. And so I love sometimes sort of clicking over to someone's profile and, and seeing someone like my friend Dina Mehta. Um, who happened to be our guest last week right here on the... Oh, I had I had no idea. I didn't Perfect. even mean to name drop there, but I, I just I happened to glance over um, at at her feed and and realized that she carries on sort of hundreds of one by one conversations um, with people using that service, and, and so you rarely see her sort of show up in your in your stream, uh, but she's really using it essentially uh, to go one to one with with hundreds and hundreds of people. Um, fascinating. It's just, it's not how I use it. It's a perfectly reasonably good way to use it. Uh, I have to start thinking about uh, whether I might want to use it that way because someone really, really smart uh, is using it in that fashion. Yeah. I mean, we had Marshall Marshall Kilpatrick on, on, and he used, uh, uses, I mean, it's kind of infamous with uh, Twitter with, with lots of feeds and automating all kinds of insane amounts of things. Um, I mean, but he's doing something different than Dina does. And I use it probably as a weird mix. I like to do public intimacy. That's the thing I'm, I'm very much into. So I'll try to highlight these very personal, open, vulnerable things. And then a one-on-one connection with someone, but try to show that in the stream so I can get other people to do that more. Because I'm trying to up the intimacy in the space most of the time. At least those are part of my goals. Um, Deb, how do you, uh, do you think that, I, I think you're joining us now from Israel, right? No, no, just just from the other Holy Land, Florida. Oh, there we go. <laughs> so I actually um, apologize for being late. I just finished speaking on the future of community and social with the Jewish community. So, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> kind of funny. Cool. I know. I, I I did one of those, and I thought it was really interesting to have the word "future" in Jewish in a sentence. Doesn't happen too often. I, so, I know. Go ahead. So, so um, we were just talking about. Uh, Ethan was talking about. He's not sure how to use Google Plus yet in the right way for himself. And I was observing that I'm not sure that people who maybe come later to platforms even ask that question of themselves, which is what's the best way for me to use the platform. Is that one of you, have you found a way that Google plus works for you? And two, do you, do you think that's true that people aren't always aware that there's a way to find their own way to use the platform as opposed to a great way? Well, uh, I'll answer the first question. I haven't had the opportunity to play with it enough, but I have 
but I because I've been traveling, but I have noticed that its uptick is enormous. I don't know if that it, you know in, in terms of the number of people who all of a sudden are there ha, has happened much quicker than any other early adopter social tool that I've been on before. Now, granted, that's a very specific community, but even within that very specific community, there's a lot of people on board, and you know probably because of the way Google sort of made it frictionless to get there, despite the sort of opening and shutting the valve. You know, once you're already on Google, it's sort of all there. Um, I think in terms of asking ourselves, I think I think mass adoption doesn't ask, tends not to ask itself what's the best way to use it. I think that's a personality type, the kind of people who, um, you know, when they see a wrench, think of doing something different with it. I think it's a type of person more than it is an earlier late adopter, right? You know, people who sort of believe that tools should be able to be like clay and morph to me. Some people want to get on online and just sort of go and use it. And if this is the way I'm good, you're telling me to use it, I'll use it this way. It's a little out of the box thinking to think, how does it best work for me? I think. Yeah. Maybe Debbie could just do, turn a little bit of something down. We're getting you kind of a little bit higher than other folks. Do, okay. Do, do you think, um, Ethan, if, if you're trying to use Google plus or any other platform to bring people together and they're using the, the medium differently, like say Dina's having these one-on-one conversations, how does that change uh what you do in trying to have her in a conversation with someone who maybe like marshall is 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 putting out feeds or like yourself or tim riley really amplifying you're all doing different things how do you have is there a way to bring you together in something on these platforms well it's funny i i wonder if those platforms are where we get together um, so, you know, what, one of the wonderful things is, is that we've got such a variety of ways to interact with one another. Um, and, and if I sort of think back in the history of social media, um, this has almost always been the case, right? We've always had the ability to sort of have uh, the public add on to it text stream, you know, even back when it was Usenet or when it was bulletin boards. We've always uh, had, the, had the private sort of um, time and sensitive communication of email. We've had the, 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 the private uh, stream communication of, of chat, you know, even when it was literally writing to each other's screens in a Unix environment. Um, so I, I think within social media, we're, we're all deeply multimodal. Um, and I think that it's probably a mistake to try to steer someone's behavior when you're having that interaction. Um, I, I think in some ways I would sort of expect that if Dean and I were to have a Twitter conversation, I would be trying to put up announcements and particularly URLs with the notion that some subset of the, the people who read me uh, might be following those links and coming back and commenting on them. Dina might be using it to have individual conversations with anyone who comments back. And what's great about Twitter as a technology is that it's flexible enough to allow for both those behaviors. Um, I think to sort of take your, your tumbling spirit on this, I, I think you know, as I understand the term, it's not a coercive term, right? You know, it's quite you're, the opposite. It's, it's uh, the you're, opposite. You're right. trying to create conditions for flow. 
And, and, and so I, I think, you know, the danger of coercion is when you sort of say, no, you're doing it wrong. Uh, come, come do it the way that I do it. Come understand this tool the way I understand this tool. Um, what I think is actually very helpful is to say, hey, uh, one of the ways that I use this is quite different from the way that you use it. Uh, what do you think about it? Is that interesting? To which my reaction may be, Dina, you're crazy. I can't possibly keep up all of those one-on-one conversations. Um, but I'm sort of happy to know that, uh, that someone is able to do it and that someone does do it. Yeah, I like the way that you um, pointed that out, Ethan, that, you know, the, the fluidity of certain tools to morph to the way that you want to use them. Some are better at that than others. And uh, I think I, I also think that's a pretty cool thing. Those tools tend to be the harder ones to understand to first use, I think. It's this weird balance between how much structure and how little structure you want to create in, in tools that help you create conversation and community. And I think that's sort of the interesting part, right? How, how do you figure out how much structure you want to put in there, right? So, yeah, just in terms of sticking with for a little bit more time this week and, and what was hot about it, I mean, Ethan, what do you think was the impact of um, of Google Plus overall in the last couple of weeks? Well, I... So first of all, I I, I want to echo um, the comment basically um, that I've never quite seen adoption this fast, um, and and I'm sort of drowning in all the little invitations uh, to to follow people. I haven't sort of shut them off or, or shunted them to a mailbox yet because I'm actually trying to get a sense for for how long this wave lasts. So I've been sort of watching them come in in real time and. Uh, they're definitely eating my life uh, to one yes. extent or another. Um, I, I, so, I, look, I mean, I, I think what's interesting about it is that everyone's reaction so far has been, this is so much better than we expected. This is potentially interesting in so many different ways. Um, but now I'm feeling this sort of lull uh, as everyone, I think, is is trying to figure out what it is that they want to do with it. Or maybe it's just that everyone's tried a couple of hangouts and then it's gone back to their ordinary life. I, I will say I, I found the uh, just the casual nature of the hangout uh, really sort of wonderful. I, I saw my friend uh, Liz Lawley. Uh, online, uh, offering to hang out, and I, I sort of jumped yeah. in, and, and it's, you know, it's, I, it's. I would I would say this about it, just while you're on on the hangout and casualness, it 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 one of the most beautiful things about the web that I, I Jane Metcalf, I don't know if you remember her, <laughs> told me sure. years, years ago when I was like I have an email address now, she's like seriously email people and they will respond to you, and I didn't believe her. I'd been working in Hollywood, right? And I was just coming to try to work on the web, and as the the web has grown. Uh, it's sometimes gone, people have gotten farther away from each other. And Twitter for me was a place where it became quite easy to jump in with someone who may have been quite well known, otherwise difficult to talk to. And I'd say the hangouts take that to even a new level of informality and familiarity with someone, any person you can just in five seconds, all of a sudden be with. At least to me, it reminded me of the context of my experience of the web. Like, like because you're even with each other and seeing each other, it, it takes away that celeb potential celebrity distance even more. I, I don't know if that's what you were, where you were going to go, Ethan, around the informality of it, but that's what struck me doing it. You know, what, what's interesting, um, I, I think I may be a shyer person than you are, Heather. Uh, and in fact, <laughs> I, 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 Ethan, I don't know about that. I've well, seen you speak in balcony. He sings from balconies. Don't listen to him. 
Uh, I, I, <laughs> I, think I think it's I'm, more a comment on the extremity, my extremeness that I need. I know, I know. <laughs> no, I, 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 I actually <laughs> what you're child in heaven. Yes. What, what, what you're in my case, I'm an introvert who, you know, unfortunately still makes my living, uh, in public. But, um, in my experience on hangout is that it's very much, or it was very much, um, like seeing someone at a cocktail party or at a conference, and sort of saying, oh, that's someone I would actually really enjoy coming up to and talking to. And if I saw you in a crowded room, I would come over and we would have a conversation. Um, I'm not sure that I can imagine uh, going up and sort of introducing myself to someone who I didn't know before. Uh, but I don't do that at cocktail parties either. Uh, right. Because, once again, I'm shy. Um, but I, what I think is sort of nice about it is because we're doing this within circles – my circle can look more like the conference of friends that I want to catch up with and less like the cocktail party filled with people that I'm scared to talk to. Um, and I think that's actually really cool. And, and, and you know, honestly, uh, Heather, if you just want to approach anybody, uh, I get the sense that you can sort of set up the hangout so that everyone who's following you can see that you're there and potentially come hang out with you. Um, and that strikes me as wonderful. It strikes me as wonderful that it's flexible enough to, to accommodate those things. But it has yeah, a very different... Go ahead, Deb. I was just going to say, I have to echo my pleasant surprise in just simply calling Google, calling something and creating a space to hang out. I mean, that is so antithetical to my, you know, previous understanding of the way they've sort of viewed hanging. I mean, it's so not structured. I'm so, I was very impressed with that. And I think to Ethan, to your point, I don't even think you have to be an introvert necessarily or an extrovert. If you don't know anybody, you might not want to, you know, like, like old chat rooms, right? There are people you'll talk to when you don't know them. And I was never that kind of person and I'm an extrovert. I'd rather be extroverted with people I know. So you know, or at least know some of them, right? Some trusted people in the circle, like you said. But just, just like having a hangout, I'm, I'm just so impressed with that. <laughs> it, it, as conceptually, like you were saying, well, that, yes. I just it, think it's really cool. It, it also seems like the culture of Google, something major shifted with maybe yeah. Vic Andrada. I'm reading Stephen Levy's piece here about um, mm. his sort of inside story. But when Vic Andrada said, uh, it's, it's not about information anymore but people i was like oh have you been listening to our podcast for the last three years <laughs> yeah Andrada, where we analyze what google should do every other week um so, I, I, I was hoping it was a Mimi Ito reference. I was hoping that, yes. that someone had, had handed out hanging out, messing around, and geeking out. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and that they saw the value of sort of thinking of those products in those different spaces. Uh, and I think the truth is that they're, they're pretty good at messing around and geeking out. Um, and I see Google Plus as sort of their, their first attempt at making it possible to, to hang out. Um, so, you know, I, I, I have high hopes that, that that's where they got the idea, but uh, I suppose it could come from almost anywhere. I was talking to someone recently who thought the other part of the big shift was seeing other Google execs hanging out or using Google+, which is something that you, you may not have seen in the past with as many of their tools so transparently. And I thought that was really interesting. And by the way, the same person pointed out to me that the, you don't see as many Twitter employees hanging out on Twitter. And I thought that was talking to users you know, on Twitter. And I thought, that's interesting. I don't know if that's really true, but I have to think about those two things. It is true. No, they're, they're, they're not, they don't, they don't, uh, the Twitter folks don't interact with 
users on Twitter. It's kind of so. They did. You know, they did earlier. Back at, yeah, earlier. Yeah, they used to. Right. It's kind of, it's just, it's interesting. It was just an interesting observation. I'm not, you know, judging it per se, but the fact that Google supposedly is hanging out and using their own tool. Using your own tool is very often the, right, the sort of testament to, for founders and users and employees. Right, Kevin? I mean, that's probably what. Yeah, you would have said at Technorati or at when you were at Google. Oh, if you yes, don't yes. use your own tools, then you know. So yes, you, well, 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 particularly if it's a tool for conversation, you exactly. Who's <laughs> you to use it? You know. It's right. kind but, um, of. A, go ahead, Kevin. So I mean, I think part part of this is that um, um, it's, it's, it's depending what you what you what you start with and where you grow from. Somebody was saying in the in the in the chat room that Facebook started out not being full of geeks, but I think it did start out being full of um, um, an aspirational in-crowd at Harvard um, and then spread out to the, the Ivy League and, and, and the university system and spread out from that. It, so there's, I, I so actually there's, dis- there's a tonal dis- beginning. Okay. I disagree thoroughly with the aspirational in-crowd. I think that that's an Aaron Sorkin device for his movie. I think it's nothing more simple than a fate. I mean, I went to Yale, whatever, but any college has a Facebook. That's why it's called Facebook. And it was just a quick and simple way to not have to create a social structure because there already is one that existed and one that had sort of a comfortable containment. It made socializing easier. So they just replaced the function of an existing uh, Facebook that you would have used as a database. Like, hey, who is this person? I don't know who they are. I don't know how much they would have thought about a lot of hanging out um, together online. It was even just, I think it was just, we're just, we're going to gonna repurpose this print thing and stick it up on the web. I don't think it's so much, we wish we were special and inside. It's just a way of saying everyone's... No, 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 I don't, I'm not saying it was deliberate. I'm saying that that was um, part, part of the reason that it ended up different from the arc of... Orkut and Friendster and MySpace was that it, it, it did fan out in that way, and therefore the tone was set by that group, and then um, over time that, that tone was, was maintained, whereas the others grew spontaneously in different ways and ended up with a different core, core user group. Um, and I think, you know, going back to the Live Journal example, the, the difference between Live Journal in the US and, and, the, and in Russia um, is very much about the, the sort of the initial crowd that used it and, and how that set the flavor for the, for the way the site um, is, is, is seen by, by the rest of, of People who, who come and look at it, you come, you know, and part of the you know, part of the issue that Orkut had is you'd go and look at it, and initially it was, it was a bunch of your geeky friends. Then after that, if you looked at it, it was um, some of your geeky friends and a bunch of people from Brazil, and eventually the people from Brazil's culture took it over, and the, and the, the geeks left. Yeah, um, Zena Fried is pointing out, and this is right that Tom Anderson, remember like MySpace, everybody's first pal, <laughs> yeah. has been super present and very oh, tumbly. Yes on Google Plus in a way that even more than he was on his own platform. And he was the guy that was sort of, I'm going to be the tumble, the, the linchpin, the tumble that like connects everybody on this, in this place. And here he right. is going up. I can try and bring it back. Right, I think, but, I mean, he put, then he was trying to build a company. Now he's got some times. <laughs> so, so Kevin, I, I, I would just love to go back to that Orchid example, right? Because, you know, Orkut was a, a potentially very interesting service. Uh, it got adopted by geeks, uh, and then it spread throughout the Brazilian population. And, and people have offered all sorts of reasons uh, why they thought it spread. Uh, Dana Boyd had this wonderful riff several years back where she showed the fact that Orkut had uh, a page that showed user base and then showed uh, nations and, and their flags uh, and the idea that Brazilian users were competing uh, in the same way that they would compete in the World Cup to be at the top of it and, and to try to get their friends on. Uh, my, my Brazilian friends um, 
think that that's that's mythical, and it was mostly just the fact that. Um, as in the U.S. and Brazil, people go away to university and you're trying to keep up with those high school friends. But what was so interesting was that that network hit a tipping point where Americans didn't want to be in on it anymore because they somehow felt that it had been taken over by the Brazilians. And the tipping point happened before Portuguese speakers were a majority. It, it happened at about 30%, but it was somehow a level high enough that some of those English speakers felt like it wasn't their space anymore. And, but, and that's a space where people right. can use some serious tumbling. Um, oh, if, right, you're ta- but you're, so you're also talking about a platform that makes it feel like there's one general space. And I wonder with something like Google+, Plus, because you can pull things into different private places, you should be able to tumble many, many different kinds of social spaces on it. I mean, do you yeah. see what I'm saying? Like, if you yes. had a really huge Brazilian presence, it still shouldn't necessarily overwhelm every other, like, the general public sense of public space. So, absolutely, but that, that could be a bad thing as well as a good thing, right? Right. So, so, so That's it, true. That's true. It, it, you know, what happened with ORCID, and the reason that I brought it up, is that it was a missed opportunity. Um, you had this really interesting possibility with ORCID of having a space uh, that could have been a pretty fascinating conversation between Brazilian and American geeks. And what you really needed for that to happen was a bunch of folks who were bridges between American and Brazilian cultures sort of stand up and say, let me introduce you to some cool people or let me connect you to some interesting conversations that were taking place. Um, It didn't happen probably because it's really hard to have that happen. Um, Now, I mean, what's interesting about Google Circles is absolutely that's possible. You could have Google Circles with no Brazilians in it and have millions of Brazilians using it. But I'm not sure that that's a good thing. That actually sort of freaks me out. Um, And one of the big things that I spend a lot of my time trying to do in social networks is try to figure out how to make visible um, people who you might not know are there uh, and, and make you aware at least that there's the possibility that you could have that conversation. With this, that's one of the things that um, that's, that's clearly missing from Google Circles is the equivalent of hashtags. There isn't a way to bridge stuff out that actually maps across the whole space. There isn't a search. What's up with Google uh, the, launching the, the something search. without a search? I would and think they just deleted their Twitter search as well. So that was won't, yeah. but won't they go together when they have a search? Won't there be hashtags in there? I would I would think so. Yes, but I think there's there's, there's so the the other thing that's that's different from Twitter. Um, Twitter has. Um, only one kind of posting, whereas Plus has a share and comments that have different um, uh, availability. You can't put certain things in comments but you, that you can put in shares. You can't put links in, um, active links in comments or photographs in comments, though they have at least got faces in them and they have got um, adding or plusing in there. Um, but what... Um, it still has the problem that Buzz has and that FriendFeed had that... Um, you, when you follow somebody, you see both their postings and their comments, and that draws stuff back to the top of your feed. So if you follow anyone who has a bunch of people who like to talk to them, um, that tends to swamp your feed because their stuff keeps crawling back to the top. Every time, if, and if there's someone who's active, like Pirillo or Scoble, um, your feed will just drown in that stuff. Um, and now Pirillo and Scoble are not you know, actual celebrities. They're just like local celebrities. Um, so I don't think, as it's currently constituted, Plus is stable for actually famous people. Um, 
um, like the ones who can comfortably hang out on Twitter and, and um, enjoy themselves there, like like Neil Gaiman or like Zoe Keating or you know the people we know who have millions of followers yet manage to maintain a conversation there, not because they're swamped in conversation, but that anyone who follows them ends up swamped in everyone else who's following them, um, and the, the the illusion of having a conversation with this person disappears. Um, and you end up with this, where do all these people come from and can you get them out of my stream again? And that's, that's something that's already obvious in Plus. Um, and, it, and it's because they've maintained the sort of structural model of one conversation around any, share, around any particular share. Um, and I think that's, that's the piece they're going to have to tune if this is going to um, actually work when they spread it out further and, and suddenly they've got you know, a newscaster using it or something like that. And then, so, you know, maybe they don't want that, but um, that's going to limit their ability to um, to, to match the the, the, the the nice experience that we get of um, on, on Twitter. So, Ethan, I just want to ask you one more thing on this before we move into fan fiction and, and your fantastic, more of your work. You've done a lot of writing and speaking about homophily that, that similar to kind of Eli Pariser we've had on here talking about the filter bubble, just the tendency of the of the net to, to have things people end up like going to like and then not meeting as easily people or different ideas that are different. Do you see anything about Google plus that might help make uh, this different or help you tum- people tumble to, to bridge areas um, or are there things like you have in a wish list that you'd like to see in this particular toolkit to help that happen? So, um... So I, I, I've been I've been writing about homophily and and related topics for a while, and you know I was thrilled that that Eli's book um, brings those ideas to the fore. Although I, I was interested that he didn't use the term, and uh, I'm wondering when my when my book finally hits the editor whether I'm going to have to uh, uh, pull out homophily as well and, and dumb it down in one fashion or another. <laughs> and um, we be, may, we may be asked at some point to say something instead of tumble, we know, but yeah. it's, it's the word we have for the moment <laughs> no, 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 to describe but, what it is. Sure. Right. Run, run with it for the moment. Um, where I think Eli really sort of focused in his book is sort of fear of the algorithms, right? So the idea that Facebook's algorithm um, is capable of sheltering you even when you might not want to be sheltered. Um, I think that's a piece of it. I, I'm much more scared of human tendencies. Um, if we go back to that example that I was sort of trying to give about, you know, how would you meet some Brazilians on Orchid? Right, um, right. There's a language barrier. Uh, there's all sorts of social barriers. Uh, there's a barrier of what's a common context that you can have a conversation on. And so I'm not sure that it's um, a pure technical problem. I think there's a few things that you can do with technology um, to make it easier. Um, one thing that I, I think Google has done really, really well uh, is is baked machine translation uh, pretty deep into some of their products. Um, mm-hmm. I think one of the smartest and, and most subtle things that I've, I've seen them do is um, translation within Chrome. Uh, and the idea that my Chrome browser now knows to auto-translate everything but English and Spanish. Yeah, I have that too. And I, I was using, you know, like like the, uh, the, the Google Plus site, you know, that dot mm-hmm. slash TO is, you know, a ter- translated from Turkish. Yeah, yeah. So I, I, I think trying to figure out how to bake that into Plus at a very deep level uh, is going to be a fascinating thing. Um, it, you know, you guys talk about tumbling. I, I mostly talk about bridging. 
Uh, So I'm I'm really interested in people who have their feet, so to speak, in in two different communities. Um, I I, I made a reference to my friend Eric Hirschman as as literally having one foot in Florida and another in Kenya uh, in my TED Talk, and I've been mercilessly mocked about it ever since. So I'll I'll, I'll make it clear that that, that I'm speaking figuratively, but someone who both understands... um, one community and another community is is often uh, capable of sort of translating between those two. Let me just pause for a moment. Someone uh, is complaining that they, they hadn't heard the term homophily. Homophily is basically a, a, a fancy way of saying birds of a feather flock together. And it's a... Um, it's a deep, deep tendency in sociology. Uh, we are much, much more likely uh, to make friends with people with whom we have lots in common, um, not just race, ethnicity, place of origin, language, but even things like relative income. Uh, and it just tends to pervade societal structure. And so one of the questions I think people are now starting to ask is whether we want our social media tools um, to keep sort of reinforcing those patterns or whether we want to actively fight them. Um, and I'm very much in the actively fight them camp. Oh, I'm all about the fighting. Yeah. yeah. Except I don't see it as fighting because one of the things I found, uh, Ethan, since I've done this sort of live tumbling in shows for a decade, is yes, people flock to people like them, but the other thing that people want very deeply is things that are interesting to them. And there's nothing more interesting than contrast. It's the fastest way to get engagement. Similarity bores the crap out of people, I can tell you, in a performance or a show or having a conversation. Well, just to echo that, um, there's a colleague at the MIT Media Lab who um, built this sort of wonderful badge system and you would answer some questions online, and your badge would know how you had answered those questions. And you know, there are basic questions about, you know, do you like the outdoors? You know, are you a social media person? Um, and you would go up to people at the conference, and if you had a lot of things in common, uh, green lights would light up. Uh, and if you had very few things in common, red lights would light up. And of course, what ended right. up happening is that everyone moved to the people that they had the most red lights with. Um, <laughs> People weren't really interested to find out, oh, you and I are the same on these five axes. Uh, They were really fascinated to find out, here's someone um, who's different on four axes. Um, Of course, you know, they did some other things at conferences where they looked at a, a conference in Asia and they looked at who had spent time with whom because these, these badges could measure who were having conversations. And in the course of a three-day conversation, there were no conversations between uh, the hundreds of attendees from China and the hundreds of attendees from Taiwan, uh, <laughs> which is, you know, they could have used some tumbling there. I mean, that, yeah. that was clearly and, – and, and this is where I think the, the social aspect of this comes in, you know, this notion of bridging to be able to come in and say – hey, here's something really interesting in this culture. Um, Here's where it's coming from. Here's the background behind it. It's a little different from uh, how you guys do it. Why don't you talk about it? Um, It's real helpful um, to have someone who has a basis in both cultures who can make that sort of introduction. Um, And and I think the the performative aspect of tumbling is great because you've got the excuse to do it because you're the entertainer. Um, but I think in social networks and in much of life, the people who are really well positioned to do this are the people who are sort of those bridges between cultures so they can try to make that introduction. Oh, yeah, sure. I think. Go ahead, Deb. 
Yeah, I was just going to say, I think uh, I think what's interesting about the experiment that you were talking about is the fact that by having, I think, what was it, three out of the four axes in the test in co- or one axis in common with everyone else, just having that one thing in common enabled people to feel a certain amount of trust that we have something in common. Let's see what we don't have in common, right? So it was a door opener. So it's sort of, though I don't think you can do it, right? It's kind of like trying to design by technology the tumult role, right? But, you know, sociologically, that's probably why people ended up going over to other people because they felt a certain trust that we have something in common which one of these things don't we have in common, right? So it created a, some sort of a sense of we probably have enough in common that I can talk to you, right? It sort of opened a proverbial door in a weird way. And, and, so, and let me just quickly say that the guy who did that experiment is a guy named Rick Borovoy, who I'm now working with at the Center cool. of Media, who does um, just really amazing work on uh, real-world community interaction. Uh, I just thought it was a terrific experiment. So, so I, as much as I would be happy to talk about Google Plus for three more shows, um, maybe we'll find <laughs> would. a way. I'm gonna try she really get, would. I'm going to try and get Bradley and uh, and Vic on the show if we could do it. Um, but I want, I'm conscious of time, so I want. I know we want to talk about a couple of the things that happened this week. Ethan, you um, have a really fun fan fiction uh, thing that you saw happen in time, and then I want to get into your work with you know world changing global voices and media center, like your big. Your sure. Big work. Well, I, I, this is just a quick shout-out, and we can just make it a, a quick reading recommendation. Um, there's a, a 3,500-word article that went up on uh, Time magazine in their arts section today. It's by Lev Grossman. It's called The Boy Who Lived Forever. And uh, The Boy Who Lived Forever, in this case, is Harry Potter. And it talks about the fact that, despite the fact that J.K. Rowling probably isn't going to write any more Harry Potter books, there's an enormous community of people writing Harry Potter fanfic. And what I thought was so great about this piece is that fanfic, and in fact, uh, Love makes this point. Maybe you could just quickly, for the people listening who aren't sure absolutely fanfic as i try to bridge i try to bridge absolutely you're you're tumbling beautifully there um fanfic (laughs) is um extensions to existing works of fiction um books movies tv shows um that push those stories in new directions uh, sometimes what they try to do is write off where the, the creator left off. Um, you know, so books eight, nine, and ten of the Harry Potter saga or, or prequels. Sometimes they try to create alternative universes, but they basically adopt the characters and the universe of existing works of fiction. And then individuals write, and it, it's sort of a... Um, a cultural economy where money doesn't change hands. It's it's a pure fan space where the stuff is is pretty much passed around um, because it's a, a hobby. It's it's fun for people to do. Um, and, and sometimes they write porn. Uh, they certainly do. Sometimes uh, with the Jewish voice. So, so, sometimes, some, 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 <laughs> like sometimes Jewish porn. We're oh, invalids, yeah. but we're aroused. Okay. <laughs> you have but, um, to assume but, um, that. Um, After a certain number of times, you've seen Kirk take his shirt off. You have to write the Kirk's box slash. It's just inevitable. Um, But but look, fanfic is the dark matter of the internet. 
you know, it, it's it's one of these things like cute cats where there's so much more of it than most people actually think is out there. It's an absolutely enormous community. It's an enormous creative force. Um, generally speaking, when anyone ever talks about it, they start by making porn jokes. Um, and this article actually does a lovely, lovely job of taking it seriously and sort of wrestling with some of the issues behind it, really wrestling with this question of how do we view fiction in our culture? Is it something that we remix or is it, uh, something that is sort of the sacred artistic creation that we should never tamper with? Um, and, and so, you know, th- this is an issue I'm actually fairly passionate about. My, my wife is on the board of the Organization for Transformative Works, um, which is a, a group that's sort of trying to get, um, <sighs> protection visibility for the fanfic community, and they had a lot to do with this article. Uh, but it, it's the first article that I, I've seen in a major publication that got it right. So I just wanted to put a shout-out out there. Uh, it's definitely worth your time to read. All right. Awesome. You know, on that note of sort of reading about something and then conjuring it, I will never forget the first time I learned about Harry Potter um, bands. Harry Potter? There's a whole bunch of not yes. only fan fiction, but there's the Harry Potter bands. And literally, uh, you know, uh, up in Boston, of course, listening to uh, some uh, uh, professor's name I'm blanking on because I'm tired to talk about fan fiction, the man, the myth, Henry Jenkins. And I walk outside and literally there is a Harry Potter, you know, jam band playing and they rocked. And it was just it's just funny that once you mention things, it's sort of the, how they sort of manifest in your universe. Maybe if we talk so, tumbling and anti-homophily well, more, people will start, you know, manifesting. What, what happens in fan fiction and, and that's similar to Google Plus or these other platforms that, that I think about in terms of tumbling is that there's a sort of emotional containment created by a universe of fiction. Uh, so it gives people a way of knowing what their entry, emotional entry points are and how they can get in. And that, that, that increases the, the social, socializing, it makes it easier for you to get in. Make, there's a way you know there's a shared kind of language. It, it does some of the bridging for you. And that's the idea of, you know, in these platforms to me, of trying to help encourage that to happen is, is to provide those things in some way. So you're talking about how can people who are Brazilian or could, you know, connect with people who aren't. It's great if you have a foot in both worlds, but it's also just great if you find uh, another mechanism for having, in my case, in shows, you know, there's guests, there's other ways of having emotional entry points to then say, Hey, there's a reason for you all to be here. And the point is that we're not all the same, like a, like a problem. We're all trying to figure out a problem. And of course, so, practical language issues like you brought up. So I, I actually think you're, you're bringing up two interesting pieces there. I, I think the first one is that um, something like a universe of, of fic um, gives you all these common reference, right? So even if we know nothing about one another, uh, we can talk for an hour uh, about, you know, whether Severus Snape is, is really a bastard or not. Um, but then there's this other piece of it, which is the common project piece. And, and this turns yes. out to be mm-hmm. one of the most important techniques out there in bridging. Um, if you find that you're doing the same thing as someone else, and you've got some of the same concerns and some of the same problems, you can often build bridges uh, across culture. And, and, and for me, sort of the, the, the most interesting example for this is um, 
birth week groups. I don't know if you guys have seen this, but mm. um, there's a lot of expectant mothers who join communities, uh, particularly on LiveJournal, that are organized by uh, the week or the month um, where your baby is expected to be born. Yeah. And that's pretty much all you have in common uh, with anyone who joined the thread. And, um, you know, people who've done this sort of say, well, you know, I'm a, I'm a Cambridge-based academic and I've discovered that I'm really good friends with a bunch of evangelical Christians from the southeastern U.S. based on the fact that we've just had this common experience of waiting for a child to arrive. Um, and it's interesting to sort of think about like, what are these arbitrary things that you can do uh, to try to find some common ground. Uh, in Ghana, where I've lived a, a substantial chunk of my adult life, uh, everybody knows the day of the week they were born on. It's just sort of a, a, a cultural thing. Like I happen to know that I was born on Thursday and therefore my nickname is Yao. And if you go to a church service, they'll organize you <laughs> by uh, the day of the week and you'll be asked to hang out with all the Thursday born people. <laughs> uh, and, and so it's this other sort of totally arbitrary uh, common ground that you can find uh, to have some way to talk to someone. That's fascinating. Well, the, I just this have to say that. This, this <laughs> I, that's, that's, that's the, the first fascinating thing I get in this conversation. Jeez, only at the one hour mark. I'm glad of that. So is, the, <laughs> is this same as the Scandinavian name days where suddenly everyone who's, who's got the same name has a special day? Um, I had, and somebody somebody organized a party um, in San Francisco for everyone named Ryan and their friends, um, and all the Ryans were extra special. And it's, it's one of these like ar- arbitrary correlations. But this reminds me of when I was in college, there were these secret societies at Yale, and these people I know. What's his name? I reached for the boy Hanahan. He wanted to prank it because he thought they were ridiculous. So they made handcrafted, like hand pressed invitations for everyone on campus with the same name. I forget what the hell the name was. That's funny. Ryan or something. It didn't tell them. They're just like, you're secretly tapped. Show up at <laughs> something blah, 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 that blah, everyone blah. at Yale would have. And then they just hid and watched <laughs> all of these people with the same name to figure out how long it would take them to figure out that that was what they had in common. That's hysterical. That's the more sophisticated version of gluing the quarter to the sidewalk and walking, watching who picks it up when you're hiding in the corner <laughs> to see how they all show up. No, but I mean, in thinking about what Ethan was talking about in Ghana and if it happens in Scandinavian countries, it just reminded me of, you know, when we sort of wrestle with how to build in features for bridging and tumbling into these social tools that are being created, you know, what are some of the interesting ways that, that that can be done? And a lot of companies have data that they can pull out and do. And so far, the only ones I've really seen who do kind of an interesting job with taking data and making it more transparent about you and your net. It's really about making me sort of, I've said this before, but making me smarter about my network. Right. So there's, you know, there are the one thing that is easy to do with 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 coding is to take is to look at the data and see where there are artificial, but there are some overlaps and create reasons for people to congregate. So I think that's kind of an interesting thing to noodle over for features and tumbling. I, I think finding uh, something that, that you have unexpected in common with someone uh, or basically just some sort of excuse yeah. to talk to someone. Um, exactly. I, and, and I actually do think this is something that we might consider building in from the ground up uh, within these services. <laughs> I, I, I mean, if you think about how... And I've thought about this more with Facebook than I have with Google+. But, you know, Facebook has all these wonderful... 
tools mm -hmm. to try to recreate your offline social network online, you know, so find your high school friends, find your university friends, find all the places where you've worked and sort of recreate all of that. And they put so much work into sort of thinking through that, but they haven't put very much work into thinking through how to find someone you don't know who you might want to know. Right. And thinking yes, about exactly. different ways to sort of encourage serendipity. Um, now, Ethan, now you're talking what we're interested in. And it is so hard that's, to get developers to do that. Uh, that's but that's what that, yeah, that's that that's the idea that came to my mind when Ethan was talking about the the arbitrary days. We need to build that those tools right. in, those well, features, I, mean, I should say. So that, that is what the hashtags do, in that they 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 bridge across the entire space um, and let you build a subset of things on that. Um, and they can go, you know, on Twitter they can get a bit out of hand because they they trend them and therefore. You end up with once they hit the trend, all, all the hashtag consists of people saying, "What's this about?" Um, but it's a way you can carve out some space and and and, and build things that, that span it. I've, and I've seen people use it use it for jokes. I've seen people use it for um, you know transient events. But I, I suspect there's more you could do with something like that as a way to sort of bridge in that way. So, so Kevin, what what I see happening with the hashtags is it's basically the resurgence of topic based dialogue in social media. Right. So if you if you sort of turn the time back and, and, you know, I'm a late 80s guy, so I still think of this as all Usenet. Right. And, and, and so everything to me sort of reduces back to that universe because that's the first social media that I started playing around with. And, and in that space, it was all topically based. And you would go on to rec.photo and you would meet other photographers and it didn't really matter where they were from as long as you could find enough of a common interest to at least have some sort of a conversation. And, and then a lot of that shifted. And, and I think Facebook's a big part of that shift. I think Facebook basically said, you have one identity, your offline identity and your online mm. identity are the same. Come bring all your friends, bring it all together. And at that point, it's just much easier to talk with the people that you already know. What, what hashtags do is essentially say, let's let topics reemerge into the space. Yes. I may just be following people that I know on Twitter or people that I sort of know on Twitter, but when someone pulls up a tag on a topic that I'm interested in, I can then switch over and follow the topic. And I think it's one of the better ways to generate serendipity. I don't know that it's the only way to do it, but I think getting people back to topics, getting back to shared interests, and having that coexist along with sort of existing social circles is a great way to go on this stuff. My, my experience uh, doing this is that... Um, translating topic into question things into questions are the are the most are the largest way to have the most um entry points into something and then you have the the greatest chance of serendipity but you need a person more than like a hashtag by itself will organize people around a topic but if a person right. then says okay we're going to inquire into here's i mean when i teach people like how to turn their presentations into conversations a lot of the work is taking an assertion that would be like a topic and trying to figure out how to restate it as an inquiry that you have some kind of live interest in because then it gives you another way to ground pulling the people together um, for what it's worth. I mean, they're all going to show up on all these platforms, but that's what I found. Uh, I, I'd like to see, um, I liked what you were saying around creating tools for creating serendipity, Ethan. I know it, in all the things that are gamified with badges, I want to see re this behavior rewarded. So I'm not sure. I feel like 
Google Plus, sorry, I'm going back to it, doesn't have such a huge follower count emphasis. Like in Twitter, your top right hand part of the page goes like, here's your, your, your accomplishment, <laughs> supposedly, based on the number of people you're following or following you. That's a little more hidden in Google Plus, but it would be nice to elevate how many people you've connected from different circles or, or to visualize uh, difference in that way, since they've already got a visualization chunk, you know, kind of piece in there. And, and that to me would give you the same, some of the same impact you're talking about, unless you're saying maybe it was a myth with the, the flag page in Orkut where you're getting a feedback loop around, around something. So you might be more inclined to do it. Well, I, I mean, I think for, for me, this notion of circles is a very organic way of thinking about how people actually do interact. And I guess what I would love to see is then people think about circles and bridges, right? So if there's a giant circle out there of Brazilians talking on Google+, Plus, uh, I'm really interested in sort of who's bridging between that community and making it accessible to other folks. Um, and you actually see this a little bit in Twitter. Um, I, I think, you know, as people start collecting interesting lists, some people then sort of go a step further and they're essentially curating what's going on in there. Uh, and so, you know, it's almost impossible to follow all the people that I'd like to be following in Syria. Uh, but my friend Jillian York does a pretty good job of sort of curating that and pulling that stuff out there. Yes. And then I'm able to sort of go in and make those connections back and forth. Mm-hmm. And it would be nice to, to see that happen. It, it, just one sort of quick thing, and this is sort of a, a, a personal pet peeve. I think that when software developers in particular hear the term serendipity, um, what they hear is happy accident. Uh, and that, that <laughs> isn't actually what the word means, or it isn't historically what the word means. Historically, serendipity is the sort of unexpected discovery that comes from careful preparation. Um, so in many ways, sort of the, 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 the classic way to think about this is uh, Fleming's discovery of penicillin. Um, it's really lucky uh, that penicillin happened to fall into an open Petri dish. Um, but it was serendipity that there happened to be a really good microbiologist who happened to be studying antibiotics, who happened to be trying to cultivate bacteria, who was able to figure out that that fungus had an antibacterial effect. So serendipity doesn't happen at a chance. It doesn't happen at a laziness. It happens out of preparation and hard work. And you actually have to build and engineer systems if that's what you want to get. Uh, that is a tumbling. I love it. So, um, uh, in fact, I, what was I going to ask you? So you were talking about people curating lists and you named a friend of yours and I forget what country she was in, but, uh, this is a perfect segue into your earlier work before the center Pacific media in, um, world changing and, and global voices. Do you find in building these networks, uh, of blogging for people around the world or dealing with, social change and different political issues. Are you naturally looking for bridgers everywhere you look? Is that what you're, you're looking for? Oh yeah. I I mean, global voices. So global voices simply is sort of a citizen media newswire, right? So it's our attempt to be Reuters or the AP or whatever, uh, where our inputs are citizen media, civic media, whichever term you want to use, um, from the developing world. And so the idea behind this was 
Rebecca McKinnon and I were so psyched about the fact that we could actually hear voices on the ground in the countries that we cared about. In her case, it was really sort of northern Asia. It was China and Korea. In my case, it was sub-Saharan Africa. And we were so excited that I could actually hear from people in Nigeria and, you know, back in 2003, 2004. And we just wanted to sort of share that experience. And what we figured out very early on was you couldn't just do that. You can't just take a conversation about something funny that happened in Lagos today and hand it to an American and expect them to laugh. Um, you actually kind of have to explain Legos to them, and you have to explain what a ghost slow is and what it means to be stuck in a traffic jam for four hours, and you have to you know, give them the politics behind the joke and so on and so forth. And, and once you start doing that, you really need someone who's capable of being that bridge figure. And it's got to be someone who both knows Nigeria really well, but knows the U.S. at least a little bit or knows Europe at least a little bit so that they can sort of make the connections between the two. And, and, and so there's sort of two things that make Global Voices work. The first is that we recruit just tons of bridge figures who are able to not just explain their culture, but sort of celebrate their culture. It, it turns out that the sort of folks who are good at Global Voices are not the, we should all hold hands, get beyond nations, sing kumbaya. They actually tend to be really passionate nationalists. Like, they're people who really think Nigeria rocks and want you to think it rocks. But they know enough about what people in the rest of the world think that they're able to sort of bridge around it. And then the second thing is that everyone who's involved with the project is a blogger. Um, so we've got that common project and common cultural capital that we all sort of engage in this process of writing online and getting the reaction. And, and you put those two pieces of social glue together, uh, and it's, it's really it's the most extraordinary community I've ever been a part of. It's you know sort of 400-odd people and a weird larger diaspora of, of blogs that we link to and people that we're involved with. Um, who do an enormous amount to sort of uh, support one another and, uh, and, and, and to sort of call attention to each other's issues and each other's concerns. Deb, you want have any uh, questions you would ask about uh, Ethan's past work? Yeah, I was, I, you know, I've always been interested to ask you, Ethan, about, um, you know, re-global voices is how, because um, I think one of the challenges with building bridges can often be you have to find the right people who have, you know, open points of view to realize that you can be different but still get along. And so considering that it's global voices, is it, do you, have you ever had to sort of mediate between people who absolutely don't agree with each other on stuff or you just let it fly or sort of since it is global and it is lots of different countries and types of things. I was just wondering if there are any interesting examples and if that was the case, how did it, how did some of these conf verbal conflicts mediate themselves? Even? So, um, so I'll, I'll give you a recent example and I'll, I'll name names cause I, I don't think the people uh, will necessarily be all that shy about being named. Um, but, you know, we've got a bunch of Israeli contributors. We've got a bunch of contributors from throughout the Middle East, including Palestinian contributors. And when an incredibly divisive story uh, like the Gaza flotilla came right. up, um, Gilad Lotan, who yes. is one of our Israeli correspondents, a brilliant social media guy, uh, was writing about uh, Israeli reaction. 
and was trying really, really hard to sort of explain to the rest of the world, look, guys, in our country, everybody's been in the military. It is our unifying social force. And so, yeah, a lot of Israelis kind of take the military word for it on this because we've all got that as a common ground. Whereas a lot of folks in uh, the Arab community and and sort of the pro-Palestinian community were saying, Gilad, this is awful. You're a government apologist for Israel. You know, what the hell? Why are you doing this? And the person who sort of stepped in and took care of the situation was Amira al-Husani, um, who is our Bahraini Middle East editor, our Arabic editor, and, and just total freaking rock star, uh, just one of the most amazing women on the planet, um, who basically jumped in and said, look, he's doing what we do. He is trying to explain to you how Israelis are thinking and feeling. It's your damn problem if you can't hear it. But he's doing the right thing. It's your job to explain not how you think or feel, but how the people that you cover think or feel. That's our job. That's our mission. Now get the hell back to work. Good for Um, her. That's brilliant. But she's coming from a place socially that allows other people to hear it. Right. And, and, you know, also knowing it's funny that you mentioned that it was Gilad because I've, he's a friend and I've spoken to him about his, his role on Global Voices. So it, I was actually thinking of him when, when I asked you for an example. So it's funny. I think it's a testament to the type of people involved in Global it's Voices. Again. Well, I, it's I, I, it's so a very interesting, it, 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 well, well, I don't know if it's homophily. It, it might be a homophily, yes, but it also it might be a personality type. No, I, 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 I think that's right. And, 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 you know, I guess what I would say is we don't do very well with the we are the world kumbaya types um, mm-hmm. because those right. folks in many cases aren't actually very good bridges. Um, right. y- you need someone right. who's actually really... And they're trying to ignore difference, yeah. That's right. And, and, and Yeah, the, the way this came up when I, uh, when I was in Melbourne recently was because a lot of facilitators I end up dealing with. And I'm like, look, if you can't tell someone they're full of shit, you're not having a conversation. If you're trying to facilitate this sort of passive-aggressive, we all have to get along, don't we, feeling, then it's not conversation. I don't know what it is. I mean, have have people tried to do that within your realm, Ethan, and everyone else has just sort of said, uh, not here, or... It, it, it's quite possible that Rebecca and I are both personally so prickly um, <laughs> that we just sort of naturally chase those people away. I, I mean, Good. I... I um, <coughs> I, I live in Western Massachusetts. It's really cold here a lot of the time. Uh, for about five months of the year, it hurts to speak. And, and so as a result, we tend to be really, really blunt. Um, it hurts to speak. And, and we just sort of say what we think. And and yeah. Rebecca, you know, spent her childhood in China. And I don't know if you've hung out with many Chinese people, but... Um, yeah, they're subtle. The, well, there's a bluntness in, in that yes. community that yeah. can be. So, um, so no, uh, you know, folks who really want to avoid conflict, we don't do well with. Uh, and then folks who are so extreme that they're not interested in ever encountering the other point of view. Um, Except the screen did, yeah. Right. And, and, and so, you know, it's funny in some ways. Our, our first Middle East editor uh, is a guy who I really like and I really respect. His name is Haitham Sabah. Um, he's a very, very active uh, pro-Palestinian activist. Um, I find some of what he writes offensive and over the line. Um, but he actually did a pretty good job with us editing the Middle East for about 18 months by sort of 
tamping down that side of his identity uh, when he was within Global Voices. And finally, by the end of it, he sort of said, look, I just can't do this. This isn't who I am. I need to to let that part of me out, and I can't do that in the context of of, of Global Voices. but, you know, it's interesting. Amira, you know, no one's going to call Amira shy. I don't think anyone's going to call Amira uh, that sort of uh, touchy-feely facilitator. In fact, you're much more likely to get bitched out by her uh, than by a lot of other folks. But she is fiercely, passionately committed to the idea that someone else might have it right and she might have it wrong. Uh, and, and that seems to be the attitude that works. I think you're also proactively dispelling the idea, and Heather, you sort of alluded to it, the idea that bridgers or tumblers are sweet, nice people who get the people on the left to shake hands with the people on the right. You know, that's not the skill, right? It's 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 sort of the honest voice, right, I, uh, I like of to respecting say that, like, both sides. Tension is a map, and if you want engagement, go for the tensest place you can find, I, I like to say. This is how yeah. you can tell comedy kind of got me. In this direction. So, um, Ethan, I have a couple questions here from different people. And Curly wants to know, can software developers understand the issues behind multilingualism? And earlier, someone else, um, Rodri, I hope I'm pronouncing your name right, Rodri, wanted to know how you think minority languages can fully participate given scale is dominant paradigm. And I know you talked about this sort of machine translation being Mm -hmm. deeply baked into Google. Are there other things? Well, uh, Rodri, and I, I, I may not have the, the name right, and I apologize for that, uh, j- just wrote a, a great piece on Global Voices actually about the Welsh community online. Uh, and, and this is very interesting. I, I have no access to the Welsh community online. I, I didn't really know there was a Welsh community online. Um, so it's one of those places where um, you really need someone both to do the cultural and the linguistic bridging. Uh, and that's one of the things that we figured out not long into the Global Voices project uh, was that language was the most important thing we do. And, um, it, you know, translation just has to be at the heart of everything we do. And you sort of translate first and then you bridge. Um, I think on the question of sort of multilingualism and software, I think you have to have an active community of people uh, who are dealing not just with different languages, but difficult different languages. Um, I think that the the paradigmatic pair is probably English-Arabic. Um, because you have word ordering problems, you have right to left, mm-hmm. left to right. And, and there are communities that are doing brilliantly with this. I, I think Medan, uh, M-E-E-D-A-N.org, is just doing gorgeous stuff with both machine translation and human translation around those languages. And as far as this question of how minority languages survive online, um, I think what it really comes down to is there's an incredible social disincentive to write in a, uh, a language with very few speakers, right? So, so my friends with Global Voices who write in Malagasy, you know, they know that there's only, you know, a couple hundred thousand Malagasy speakers online. And if they really want to reach a broader audience, they probably need to be writing in French or in English. And, and so you somehow have to get over that. You somehow have to get to the point where I can write in Malagasy and still believe that some large population are going to be able to read me. 
it's not going to be Google for a while, right? Google Translate isn't going to do Malagasy for some time to come. So what you actually have to sort of do is build a community that can do that sort of citizen translation so that you can unpack what's best about the conversation in Malagasy or what's best about the conversation in Welsh and share it with that broader audience. So, so I mean, the, the, well, it's also a very practical thing is that um, – if you generate more parallel text, then the Google Translation has more to work with. Well, but so that's, the, exact, that's exactly right. And, and, and one of the things that I would say is the survival of certain languages uh, probably depends on developing a citizen translation community, right? Yes. So that you end up with that parallel corpus and you end up with enough language to have a language model. And then you hope at some point you get to the point where you can hand it off to Google and say, okay, now make us Malagasy English. So, well, I mean, for Malagasy English, so, that's so, a natural so, segue. So, 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 <laughs> hang on, let me chuck a couple of things. You say the, the, um, can programmers understand this? And programmers tend to make two parallel naive mistakes. Um, one is that everyone has a single language, um, and the second is that is determined by geography. Um, yeah. And yes. th- you, you can see this in the, de- in the design of Google where you, you go to France and suddenly your results are in French. Um, but um, you see another site. So my friend Stephanie Booth is in Switzerland, um, but she's in French-speaking Switzerland, and she's English bilingual, um, is forever being driven to websites in German because they assume that because German is the majority language in Switzerland, that's what she wants. Um, and there's, you know, there is this sort of crude assumption of linguistic destiny. And her, and her response to this is, stop, stop and think. All of us are imperfectly multilingual. All of us um, speak some languages with different abilities and different strengths. Um, but we, we, assume, we tend to, you know, assume that away when we start writing code. And, and it's one of, these, one of these things where programmers simplify the world away from, from the reality. Uh, and we need to push back on that. Piece you know, really it's so funny. It's you say that because to me, the most obvious thing about the web was that it made geography matter less. Well, and of course, you know that that's the fantasy, right? I mean, the the fantasy is that we've entered the post geographic, and that's just not true in so many different ways. Um, you know, language shapes what we interact with. And if you sit down and do a search, do a search in English and try to figure out what percent of the Internet is in English, and most of the stats that you get are around 75 or 80 percent, those stats are total bullshit. Um, they're completely wrong. It's probably somewhere below 40, maybe below 35% at this point. Um, but it's just a question that sort of ceased being interesting to English speakers at some point in the game. And now the really good research that's being done in it is mostly being done uh, in the Spanish-speaking world and particularly in the Basque-speaking world uh, as people are trying to figure out how to sort of assert uh, the need for language there. So we're split by language. We're split by who we actually know once we start getting into social media, and that tends to be heavily geographic. We're split by common cultural reference and, and interest. You know, so this idea of this post-geographic, it's all one web, is a wonderful fantasy, and it's a fantasy that we should actually be working to try to make real. Uh, there, there would be great things about bringing that into reality, um, but it's awfully far from the reality that we currently live in. And I'd also say that that, that cultural difference is, is something you'd also want to cherish. It doesn't necessarily, we don't, right, a la the homophily thing, we don't, we don't necessarily want, 
people to lose their Welsh culture and lose, right? And there, there's something beautiful about that, even as we become a more flattened world, right? I think you could argue that people may even want to hold on to it more as we become more connected. Sure. In a good I mean, way, not necessarily in a bad way, right? Well, I, I mean, if you want an introduction to what that post-cultural world looks like, all you have to do is look for a Hollywood film that grosses more than a quarter billion dollars. Oh, God. Um, because Must any I? of those... Well, <laughs> so, so, so this is what I'm saying. Those yeah. blockbusters yeah. are all designed to make their money in other markets. They're right. not really being made for an English-speaking audience. They're being made... They're all shown to be merchandised really well, which means they want as childlike and as nonverbal as possible. Childlike, nonverbal, easily translatable. So it's very, very hard to do linguistic humor. It's very hard to do subtle. Right. It has to be done in extremely broad strokes. And and so you end up with this sort of weird non-culture. Like people assume right. this is American culture. Like I hang out in West Africa and people assume that we sort of, you know, all run around with the sleeves torn off our shirts and shoot guns and that stuff blows up on the streets all the time. But you do, you do. Well, you, you don't. You don't I mean, correct them. <laughs> I mean, personally, I do, but I mean, not everybody does. Yeah, in, so, in Western Massachusetts. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, <laughs> things just blow up all the time. It's it's. Uh, I, I'm sure my car will explode on the way home. Um, it, but trying to explain that yeah. that is an American culture. That's this weird globish that sort of emerges as a way for us to have cultural export, uh, but that there is, you know, different subtle culture and that it is worth paying attention to, but it's a lot more work. Um, th that's always a fun conversation. So as we round up near the end of our time here, maybe we could just hear a little bit more about the Center for Civic Media and what um, you think you'll do there to help increase bridging and if there's anything you know we could do to help sure so center for civic media is a pretty big tent it's basically a space for any project where people are trying to help communities get information produce information that help them get civically involved in one fashion or another and its history has been um pretty local. It's, it's really sort of focused on real world communities and um, it's really focused on sort of helping people get information that can be as basic as, you know, when's the bus coming in Boston or how would we get together and fight hydrofracking? Um, for me, I'm sort of interested in this idea that what goes on in a community could be interesting to, to people all over the world. And so one of the, one of the problems that I'm sort of thinking about is how do you participate <laughs> in a way that's helpful? And what I mean by that is, if you remember these, uh, the, the, the labor protests in Wisconsin, uh, people around the country and actually around the world were really psyched about the protests. Some were, wanted to find a way to support protesters and you know, basically DDoSed a local pizza shop uh, by calling them up and ordering pizzas to be delivered to the protesters. And, and that's you know, all well and good, but there's got to be something the rest of us can do in solidarity to participate in a way that's more helpful. We've we got to find a way that's better than turning our Twitter icons green in support of the Iranian people. There's got to be some way um, to help community participation. So that that's sort of one of the different issues that we're hoping to play with. 
Um, but there's there's a lot to be done. I mean, the truth is, I think as this world gets more complicated, the relationship between social media and uh, broadcast media, um, I think we literally have to map it uh, and sort of try to understand how that landscape works and, and how the information goes back and forth between them. So I think we're going to be doing a lot around that. I think we're going to be doing a lot around participation. I think there's a lot around mapping that we want to do. Um, so we'll see. Uh, it, it's it's early on in its development. It would be a mistake for me to sort of say, I think we're going to do this and that, because mostly I'm hoping to learn from the folks who are there. But the hope is that it's going to be one of the places where people are playing with this question of um, how do communities get information, how do communities make decisions, how do communities participate. Uh, and I'm hoping we're going to have open doors uh, for people around the world, including you guys, uh, to come and be part of that conversation. Yay! So, Ethan, uh, we didn't want to keep you from your family. Um, Well, I appreciate it. My my, my family's asleep at this point. I think you're probably (laughs) keeping me from beer at this point. Oh, Oh, that's been worse. (laughs) That's one of my ongoing, it comes up in every other show, one of my my hopes is an app that lets you buy other people drinks. Then you get kind of points for connecting people who don't know each other in other places by buying them drinks. Um, I, I, I think we could do that, actually, and I, I, I think we could probably bang that out pretty quickly, and my guess is uh, you could revolutionize Brooklyn. I don't know if it would work beyond that, but... Uh, but, but, I mean, or the incentives are like, I know that you, both of you, but you don't know each other. Yeah. I mean, I mean, drinks are useful. Uh, they, they work. Lubricants. Yeah, so... So we have usually an after show. We're going to try and do something in Google Hangout, uh-huh. which is for people who are listening... Google Plus is beginning to the answer of my show, Tumbling Dreams, which is uh, you can yes. get a bunch of people. And I think it's even more than 10. Am I right, Kevin? No, it's, it's, I think it's, it's nine seven. people. It's, it's, um, but um, if people leave, other people can join. So there are like nine slots and people can come and go. So you see think- some records that say, you know, Vic Gudutra rang out with 25 people. And that's because a bunch of them left and other people joined in. In a video space, and uh, if those of you, you know, we have nice active chat room as we always do. We haven't seen some of your faces or heard your voices, so it'd be really awesome to see you. Well, uh, I don't know if we can get everybody into Google Plus. I think they just shut the invites down again, unfortunately. Sorry, everyone. It was open a minute ago, but my I'm yeah. very lagged today, so I can't actually send any out. Ethan, if there are other questions you want to see uh, delved into, that's part of, you know, what we're open to doing here. So people, you're like, you got to talk to so-and-so. Me, we'd love to talk to Henry, and I want to get more into Google+. Plus. But, I mean, all these different bridging folks you know from uh, World Changing Global Voices would love to have more of them to hear their particular approaches to how they're doing their bridging and having their flow of conversation well, work so in their words. I, I would I would happily book uh, your next ten shows if you'd like. So yeah, we, we can, yeah. We, we have we, like a guest curatorial. It'll be like when yes, please when, send us when send Tina, us Rebecca send us people. When Tina Brown, you know, has David Bowie guest edit, you know, Vanity Fair. That's what we'll have a moment. We'll have a moment. Absolutely love well, some maybe, suggestions. Maybe not July as I'm trying to write this book, but but no, no, uh, you can just send us a list. We'll run around for you. Okay, all right. Maybe I'll do that. That would that would be great. Um, but in the meantime, should we should we go try to hang out? We're gonna hang out. So uh, everybody, this has been a wonderful time. Thanks for being anchorly for joining us, and this is like um, 
Romper Room? Do they have that talk show? Yes. Show? Yes. Yes. I see Anchorly and Myers, and we had Lynn Yui this week, and we talked about living in Thailand, and uh, and Howard uh, joined us from New York, and but wait, I don't know your actual name, but uh, Tony Comstock once again, who t- this week let us know that he met his wife on Vox, which so is awesome. Is, which gives me hope, you guys. Cause I'm, As an X6 supporter, that just makes me happy. Someone got something useful out of Vox. Available for, yeah. So, anyway, thank you all for joining us. Thank you so much, uh, Ethan Zuckerman, for being here. And, uh, Kevin, you didn't say Fatic. <laughs> well, everyone's saying in the chat room, so I think we're. Yeah, we're, we're in the chat room doing it. We're fatticized, yes. Thanks for being here. You're welcome anytime. Anything we can do to help you. Well, thank you. I, I, I look forward Happy. to coming back at some point, and in the meantime, I, I hope to send you uh, some fun global voices for the next conversation. Fantastic. Awesome. Thanks, Ethan. Thank you, people. We'll see you here next week with Kevin. Our guest is? Our guest is um, Ellen, who is, Ellen Dudley, who is creating a startup in the west of Ireland to help people connect with each other. Um, and I, I met her last week at Ecom, and I think she'd be, she's going to be a great guest for us. Fantastic. Send us more suggestions, and we will see you guys here next week. Bye, everyone. And, oh, thanks to Andrew Hazlitt, our, our esteemed producer, towing away in the harbor of Baltimore. Thanks to him. <laughs>